Several years ago now, a tornado ripped through a home in Tennessee, killing a 24-year-old woman named Carrie Stoll. She was one of 56 people who perished in a series of deadly twisters that spread across five states. When first responders arrived, everyone assumed that her 11-year-old, 11-month-old son, Kyson, had died as well. The house was leveled with no trace of where it had been. Debris was scattered all over the place with no sign of life. But two hours after the storm had passed, a firefighter named David Harmon was searching the wreckage and found the boy alive. At first he thought it was a doll amidst the debris and the mud. But he reached down and grabbed hold of the neck of that little baby and he took a deep breath of air and he began to cry. And little Kyson, who had been thrown more than a hundred yards from his home, amazingly had only minor injuries. His grandfather, as well as newspapers, radio, and television, reported that story and described him as a miracle baby. Now, I don't want to in any way diminish the miraculous nature and the joy that we all feel when we read stories like that. And I don't want to be accused of splitting hairs. But little Kyson is not a miracle baby. He's an infant who experienced a miracle. And there is a difference. Miracle babies are those that are conceived and born under supernatural circumstances. And what I want to do this Christmas season is look at the mother and dad of a truly miracle baby who are part of the supporting cast of the Christmas story. Their names are Zachariah and Elizabeth, and they are the mom and dad of a little boy who grew up to be known as simply John the Baptist. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the passage of Scripture that we read from, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And let me just mention as you're turning there that the Christmas story contains not one, but two miracle babies. Miracle babies that are born to cousins, one who was old, one who was young, one who was unmarried, the other who was not married, or who was married. The married woman who couldn't get pregnant, is told that she's going to get pregnant. And the unmarried woman who shouldn't be pregnant is told that she's about to be pregnant. So what you have here in this Christmas story is two supernatural births. Actually, more precisely, two supernatural conceptions. And clearly, the greatest of these miracle babies is the birth of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ whose conception came about without the intervention or involvement of a male. But this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about the lesser of those two miracle births when we talk about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Now, let me just mention before we get into the text, let me point out something that candidly is so easily overlooked. When you read the Christmas story as it's given for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. 
And that is, did you notice all of the space that is given over to the birth of John the Baptist? In fact, his birth and the circumstances surrounding it and details regarding his mom and dad make up almost half of this first chapter. His story is told in verses 5 through 25 and in verses 39 all the way to the end of the chapter. And that should tell us something. Because if space is any indication of a person's importance, and I think it is, then John is an extremely important person in the life of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said that John was the greatest man who ever lived. And that is not only high praise, but accurate praise in light of who it comes from. Now, let me just set the scene for you. When the prophet Malachi, who was the last Old Testament prophet, put down his quill, God put away his prophetic voice. And for more than 400 years, God is silent. A word from God was not heard for four centuries. And finally, God speaks again, not through a prophet, but through an angelic messenger by the name of Gabriel. And two families, because of what he announces to them, are going to have their lives and world absolutely turned upside down. And they are about to begin, honestly, what had to be the ride of their lives. Verses 5 and 6 give us the historical context of the Christmas story. We're told that it happened during the time of King Herod of Judea. He was also known as Herod the Great. He was a king who had been appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate around 37 years before the birth of Jesus. And as you read history, and as you see it even in Scripture, he was a brutal, wicked, evil man. When he took over the throne, he ordered the murder of the Jewish high priest, simply because the priest was more popular than he was. How'd you like it if politicians dealt with their rivals that way? You know, he's more popular than me, he's gone. He was a guy who clung to the title King of the Jews with a vicious jealousy that was so out of control that after the birth of Jesus, he orders the execution of every little boy in and around Bethlehem who was under the age of two because you remember the Magi came from the east and said, where is he that is born King of the Jews? Before he dies, he will have two of his sons killed simply because he couldn't stand the thought of them taking his place. He imprisoned his third son and had him executed after his son attempted to escape from prison. He was an insanely jealous, brutal despot who would make Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, Putin, and all the other dictators out there look like child's play. But you know, there was one thing that King Herod did that kind of boosted his approval ratings in the eyes of the Jewish people. And that is he expanded and lavishly furnished the temple. In fact, under his leadership, he had 10,000 Jewish laborers 
working on the temple under the direction of a hundred priests. And what you find Luke doing in Luke 1 verse 5, immediately in contrast to this wicked, godless, brutal, ruthless king, is Luke introduces us to a couple named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth who were polar opposites of Herod. They were a godly couple. Zechariah was faithfully serving in his division of priests at the time. We know from history that at that time there were about 10,000 priests who were living and working in and around Palestine. They were divided into 24 groups, and each of those groups was assigned to work for one-week periods twice a year in the temple. And Luke tells us that the division of Zechariah was under the heading of Abijah, which is significant, and here's why. Zechariah was not among the elite members of the priesthood. I like that. He was just an ordinary priest. And he was one of 8,000 that lived outside the uh, city limits of Jerusalem. You know, I love the fact that as you read the Christmas story, that for the most part, apart from the Magi who came from the east, the people that God used to bring about the birth of Jesus were just common, ordinary folks. I like that. It wasn't the overly educated, it wasn't the wealthy, it wasn't the prestigious. It was just common, ordinary folks. Zachariah and Elizabeth, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph. Next week, as we'll see, Simeon. I like that. And we're told in, in verse 5 and 6 that uh, Zachariah's wife is named Elizabeth. And interestingly, she's a descendant of Aaron, who was Israel's first high priest, which had to be pretty special. Verse 6 says that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all that the Lord commanded and his decrees blamelessly. They weren't perfect, but they were passionate about serving God. Which is why the next phrase is so startling. See verse 7? It says they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Friend, that verse is beyond shocking in light of what is said in verse 6. Because you would expect verse 7 to read, and they had 12 kids, and they were exceedingly blessed by the covenantal God of Israel as he promised a fruitful vine to his faithful ones. Friend, that's what you'd expect. But it doesn't say that. It says that they were childless. No kiddos. The religious culture around them would have been unforgiving in their prognosis of this couple. In the mindset of people in the first century, faithful believers could expect to participate in the Abrahamic covenant blessing of prosperity and fertility. A barren woman in the Old Testament covenant would have assumed that she herself had somehow been abandoned by God. And that through some fault of her own, 
She was unable to have children. And you know what? Everybody would buy into that lie. Which is why it's significant later on in this chapter, in verse 25, when Elizabeth is talking and she's, she's pregnant, she says, God has taken away, and the word that's interesting to, he uses there is God has taken away my disgrace because she was able to have a child. Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ taught that men whose wives could not have children were unable to enjoy close communion with God. In fact, barrenness was considered valid grounds to divorce a woman. And so amazingly, after 400 years of silence, God chooses to communicate to a couple who by first century standards were not considered blessed. By the way, don't overlook that last phrase in verse 7. It says, and they were both very old. Some of your translations will say advanced in years. Luke who is a physician, wants us to understand the extent of this miraculous conception that's about to take place. They were old. Some of your translations render it, they were well stricken in years. Now, what I'm going to say next really pains me to say it. But in Jewish culture, men and women, when they hit 65, were considered entering old age. That really bothers somebody who's 66. But I've got to tell you, I've often reminded people that while 65 may be the old age of youth, it is the youth of old age. So I consider myself still quite young. What's interesting is that in the Jewish culture, when you reach the age of 70, you were considered gray-haired and wise. And when you reach the age of 80, you were considered well-stricken in years. Zechariah and Elizabeth are in their 80s. 80 years old. Their age-spotted hands would never hold their own child. By the time we're introduced to them, they had, they had, I believe, given up on praying for a child. I think that this couple had just sort of surrendered themselves and said, God doesn't want us to have any kids. I think they probably stopped praying decades ago. They were faithful to God, to each other, even though God, for some unknown reason, hadn't answered their prayers. They weren't in sin. They weren't engaged in hidden rebellion. They weren't out of fellowship with God. They hadn't abandoned their heritage or their faith. Friend, think about this. This is a couple that is smack dab in the center of God's will. And yet, God had not given them their greatest wish. You know what Zechariah means? It means God remembers. Elizabeth means the promise of my God. And I'm sure that there were more than one occasions when the evil one came and whispered in their ear and said, God remembers his promise. Yeah, right. Because clearly God hasn't remembered his promises on your behalf. 
But you know what this couple did? They continued to serve. They refused to give up. Let me make a point of application at this point in the message by asking the question, what does it take for you to stop serving God? What is it that causes you to stop trusting Him? To believe that God doesn't care about you anymore. That His promises are for everybody but you. Joseph Parker, who was the great London pastor of the last century, recorded in his journal one day, Oh God, why is it that your hand of blessing is on everyone else but me? Ever felt that way? Sure you have, because I have. We all have. But you know what this couple did? They just kept plowing away. They refused to quit. They said, we're not going to give up. And I love that God chose an ordinary country priest who never really amounted to much, who never seemed to make much of a contribution to the priesthood. Friend, in the eyes of his peers and his neighbors, he was just an ordinary fella. But it's to this man and his wife that God chooses to break his 400 years of silence. And their lives are about to change big time. Because what happens is that Zechariah is chosen by Lot to be the one who would go into the, the temple and burn the incense in the Holy of Holies. Thousands of priests would go through their entire time of being a priest and not have that privilege, not have that honor. The blessing of going in and representing before God the entire nation and to do so in prayer before God. Friend, that was the ultimate culmination of one's priestly office. And after years and years and years of trying, finally, when the guy's in his 80s, that honor fell to Zechariah. Now, what did he do? Well, as you read the Old Testament, and as you know all about the details of that, Zechariah was able to choose two friends, two other priests, who would accompany him into the Holy of Holies. The three of them would prepare everything, and then the other two men would back their way out of the holy place reverently. And Zechariah would be in there all alone, he would, and, and he would then walk over to that altar of incense with liquid frankincense, and he would pour that frankincense on those hot burning coals. And immediately, that holy of holies would be engulfed in billows of sweet-smelling smoke, symbolizing the sweetness of prayers ascending to God. No doubt that had to be the greatest moment of his life. And he's there in the Holy of Holies before God Almighty, representing the nation of Israel. And then, as the smoke clears, Zechariah suddenly realizes he's not alone. Verse 11 says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And verse 12 says, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. 
Friend, that's an understatement. A more literal rending might be, he was totally freaked out. I mean, this was something that was a total head popper. And there he is alone in the Holy of Holies with this angel who identifies himself later on as Gabriel. And he tells Zechariah in verse 13, he says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your, your, your petition has been heard? Friend, I don't believe that Zechariah was in that Holy of Holies praying on behalf of he and his wife that God would bless them with a son. You know what he was praying for in that Holy of Holies? He was praying for his nation. He was praying for the coming Messiah, the redemption, and and national holiness on the part of the people. He wasn't praying for a son. Friend, the guy's 80 years old. I love kids. And I'm a tad away from 80. But I can assure you, even at 66, I'm not interested in having a bunch of little rugrats running around. That would just... Connie and I love the empty nest. Let's just put it at that. You know what? A thousand times over 50 years ago, he and Elizabeth had prayed for kiddos. And no doubt after their times of prayer together, they probably just wept. And they said, oh God, give us a son. But you know what? After all those years of praying, they finally stop. And this angel comes and says, Zechariah, God's heard your prayers 50 years ago. And I know your wife feels disgrace not being able to have a child. And I remember the tears that you shed years and years ago. And I'm here today, years later, to answer your prayers. Gabriel is delivering a stunning revelation to this old priest and to every one of us as well. Just because God never answered your prayers years earlier doesn't mean that he didn't hear them And it doesn't mean that he won't answer them in the future. He he knew that this couple wanted children. And he knows that right now they weren't able to have it. Unless God would perform some radical internal surgery, not only within the body of Elizabeth, but also within the body of Zechariah. I mean, somehow, let's let's turn the clock back on both of you. And friend, their physical inability is now the perfect platform for God to work supernaturally. Can you imagine their Christmas card the following Christmas? I mean, here they are, you know, sitting there, and they've got this little infant on their lap 
their walkers and canes are off to the side. And I'm sure people were saying, who's that little guy in the picture? Well, that's our son. And his name is John. And you know what John means? The grace of God. And every time they called his name, it served as a reminder to them that God's grace had indeed been sufficient to help them. You know, put their three names together, and it means God remembers his promise, and his grace is enough. I love that. Well, let's fast forward in the story. There's, there's so much more here. You can read it and study it on your own, but But what happens is Elizabeth gets pregnant and Zechariah, because he initially questioned the angel and God's ability to work, is told that he's going to mirror the spiritual condition of Israel. In other words, because of his lack of faith, he's going to be unable to speak and unable to hear. And what he does is following his priestly duty, he probably got on his donkey and just rode it as fast as he possibly could, you know, five miles per hour breaking the speed limit as he went. And he rushes home to Elizabeth. And probably through charades and a writing instrument, he tells his wife about his encounter with the angel, that they're going to have a baby. And their world is absolutely turned upside down. Children can do that. Well, then what happens as you look at this chapter, beginning at verse 26, is that Dr. Luke sort of shifts the spotlight from Zechariah and Elizabeth to Elizabeth's cousin, whose name is Mary. Mary, as you know, is about to get married to the town's most eligible bachelor, a young guy named Joseph. And that same angel appears to her And tells her that she's going to have a baby. You know, I can't help but imagine, and I guess I have a fertile imagination. I was sharing some of this with my wife, and she said, don't go too far. Don't go too far. But you know, I imagine that Mary was just overwhelmed with wedding plans. There were the invitations. There was putting the finishing touches on her wedding dress. She was working with the photographer and the caterer, hopefully, She was using the Olsons, the best caterer around. And she was dreaming of the festival and the feasting and the honeymoon and what it's going to be like for her to be married to her beloved fiancé, Joseph. And then all of a sudden, her plans are abruptly halted. Her to-do list is changed forever. And her world and that of Joseph is turned upside down forever as Gabriel comes in and appears to her and just unloads a boat full of information on her, the biggest of which is that she's going to supernaturally have a baby. And Mary can't believe her ears. She asks the logical question, well, well, how can these things be? And I love the response of the angel. He says, Mary, Mary, you need to remember something. And that is that nothing is impossible with God. 
And he tells her that God is going to overshadow her womb. And God is going to bring to life one of her eggs by divine touch and turn her womb into a holy of holies so that the offspring will be fully man and fully God. He'll be able to live a perfect life in order to become a sinless sacrifice for the sins of the world. And I love the fact that Mary responds in verse 38 of this chapter and she says, here I am, Lord. I'll do whatever you want. I'm willing to present my body to God as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is the most reasonable thing I could do. And here's what I want you to see. I believe that what Gabriel says next to her is so gracious, so loving, so incredibly kind to this young girl who probably was no older than 15 or 16 years of age. In fact, look at verse 36. I'm in Luke 1. He says to her, even Elizabeth, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month of pregnancy. Now friend, that is not a throwaway line. Gabriel drops this information regarding Mary's cousin Elizabeth into the mix because Mary needed somewhere to go. She needed a safe space. Her reputation is about to be destroyed. Friend, you've got an unmarried girl who's about to become pregnant. In fact, as soon as Joseph hears about this, he'll assume what everyone else assumed. And that is that Mary's been unfaithful. And Gabriel, realizing this, says, I'm going to need to visit that fella a little later in this story and make sure that he doesn't break off this engagement. But Mary, I want you to understand that everything is going to work out for you. And here's what I want you to see. For Elizabeth, the news of her pregnancy will end her shame. It will sweep away all of that dust of suspicion that had dogged her for 50 years. She thought, and maybe even others clearly thought, that her inability to become pregnant under the Abrahamic covenant was, was seen as a sign of God's displeasure. And ignorant and unenlightened and uncaring and calloused people no doubt snickered at her and made her life miserable. And you know what? Elizabeth's supernatural pregnancy ended her shame and restored her reputation. But for her cousin Mary, it was the exact opposite. Her supernatural pregnancy is going to bring a life of shame. The clouds of suspicion will begin to gather. And friend, they never left her. Never. 
In fact, John 8.41 says Jesus will be accused by the religious leaders of having a mother who was sexually immoral. For one woman and her husband serving God is now about to become a joyful experience. And for another woman and her husband serving God is about to become incredibly painful and difficult. Elizabeth's world is about to come together. Mary's world is about to come apart. And her life is filled from then on with suspicion and accusations and gossip. Mary and Joseph were, throughout their life, the gossip of the town folk. You know, can you just imagine? Psst, have you heard? Mary's pregnant. She's not married. And what's more, she's out there claiming that her pregnancy is because of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Doesn't that just take the cake? Friend, that was a delicious scandal that everybody wanted to take a taste of. And Mary's, I'm sure her own family was outraged. Her father was shamed. The rabbis were incensed. And in all likelihood, her life was in danger. She was in physical danger of people taking matters into their own hand and stoning her because of what she had done. And so what happens with this supporting cast of characters? Elizabeth and her husband Zachariah. When God in His grace is giving to Mary through Gabriel information that ultimately provides hope and security and safety and understanding and clarity. Friend, what, what this angel... Gabriel is telling Mary, is Mary, you need someone who understands what it means to live under a cloud of suspicion. You need to learn from someone who learned to keep serving God in spite of tongues wagging, fingers pointing, and accusations of shame. And I believe that, that Gabriel gives to Mary the name of the only person on the planet who would be able to understand her. Which is why as soon as Mary is told that she's going to have a baby by this angel, she takes off on that three to four day journey, that hundred mile journey to the hill country to visit her cousin. By the way, here's, here's a very important insight. If Mary had anything to hide, if she had sinned morally, the last place she would want to go is to the home of one of Israel's priests whose duty it was to uphold the law. Well, Mary leaves alone and she shows up at the doorstep of Elizabeth and Zachariah's home and, and she greets Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the baby leaps in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she cried out with a loud voice and we're told that she says in verse 42, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. Friend, think about what you have here. You've got two cousins. 
bearing in their bodies the final instrument of redemption. On the one hand, you've got the forerunner of the Messiah who will effectively become the last Old Testament prophet, whose name is John. And then within the womb of Mary, you've got the Messiah, the living Son of God. And don't miss this, given our culture today. Please note what this pre-born baby named John does. This one and a half pound, nine inch long baby that's in the womb of Elizabeth. He leaps for joy. And don't tell me that that's just a piece of flesh in there. When John, by means of the Spirit, knows that he's in the presence of Christ, whom he will later introduce, John, as a preborn, is a living, thinking, rational person in the womb of Elizabeth. And he feels emotion. And so, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he's so overwhelmed that he soars upward for joy. And these two women, can you imagine what, the, what fellowship these two ladies had together? Both are expecting so that for the first time, and so they start comparing notes about what it's like to be pregnant. One is young, the other old. Both have conceived through a miracle of God. Both have their sons announced to them by the angel Gabriel. Both were carrying sons who would fulfill prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures. Both sons would have ministries that would intersect one with the other. And we're told that for three months these women were together. No doubt they prayed together. They talked about births and babies. They poured over the Scripture. And I believe that when it says in verse 56 of this that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home... I think that that is a summary verse given to inform us that Mary leaves after three months, but not necessarily before the birth of John the Baptist. Which means, by the way, that Mary very well may have played a role as the midwife to her cousin Elizabeth. Which no doubt was important. Because six months later, she's going to give birth, and the only one there to tend to her needs was her husband, Joseph. And so maybe we, she was saying, Honey, honey, this is what you need to do. Believe me, I've gone through this before. I was there with Elizabeth when she gave birth. And here's the point. Even in this period of time, God was preparing Mary for what she needed. Well, what's the lesson? What's the takeaway so we can go away, right? As my daughter-in-law says. Friend, here's the lesson I want you to learn. God sometimes turns our world upside down and our plans are changed forever. And in the process of those changes, you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to stay faithful to keep on believing, to keep on encouraging. Let me ask you, how prepared are you to have your world changed and the plans that you've made turned upside down? 
You know, we all have our laundry list of things we want to do. Things we want to buy, the weddings we want to attend, retirement, that first child, that first grandchild, that adoption, that job, that career, that education, that house, that dream vacation, that plan. We, we sort of set out everything in our life, what we want to have happen, and then the shoe drops. And God interrupts everything. There's some difficult, something sudden, something disturbing, something unexplainable. And in the midst of it all, you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to stay faithful. And you know what he wants from you and I when our world's like Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph's worlds were turned upside down? He wants us to say, Lord, I'm going to set aside all my personal list of items I'm expecting in life. And I'm simply going to offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable to God, which is the only reasonable thing for me to do. Friend, during this Christmas season, let's be like Elizabeth. Let's be like Mary. Let's be people who are accept the changes that God gives us. And then let's especially be like Elizabeth who when Mary arrived was such an encourager. You know, I'm sure that there's somebody this Christmas season that you can come alongside and help. To offer them a word of encouragement. To put your arm around them and just let them know that you love them. And that's what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're grateful for this story. And it's not just a story that's words on a page. Father, it's history. These are events that happen just as they are recorded in Scripture. And so we pray that we would learn the lesson that you want us to learn. And Father, when you delay in answering our prayers that we have offered, in some cases for decades, year after year after year, Help us to stay faithful. Help us to keep our hands to the plow and to continue to live as you would want us to live. Seal these truths to our heart, we pray, for we ask it together in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said,